KFA here in Berkeley and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley. Also 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Please stay with us for a cover-to-cover open book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. A year ago, I had a chance to chat with Nora Ephron, whose latest book, I Remember Nothing and Other Reflections, is now out in trade paperback. She's also the author of I Feel Bad About My Neck, the novel Heartburn, director of several films, including You've Got Mail and Julie and Julia and several others, author of the screenplay When Harry Met Sally, Silkwood, Nora Ephron, these are a series of short essays. What prompts you to actually write an essay like these? Are they assignments or just you sit down and go, i got to talk about this? No, none of them was an assignment. I think that a few years ago when I started writing I Feel Bad About My Neck, the impulse was that I was going through something that I thought nobody was really writing about in any honest way. The people are always writing books about how these are your golden years. You know, how are you never better? Well, that is just not true. And it isn't just that you feel bad about your neck and a variety of other things no one ever tells you are going to happen, like the complete decline of your elbows. But, you know, people get sick, you start losing friends. And I think my impulse came out of, you know, a sense that... It should be written about. Now, of course, I'd grown up with parents who were writers who thought everything should be written about. That's the way they dealt with all the things in our life, is that they would say to us, everything is copy, everything is material, you'll turn this into a story someday. So it seemed perfectly logical for me to start writing about it. And this book, I had more things to say. And I thought it would be fun to write about memory and what happens to it when you get to your 60s and later. And then I thought I would even write a little bit sort of memoirs, even though the moment when you're losing your memory is perhaps not the best moment to be writing your memoirs, but that's when (laughs) most people do it. So that's what it all came out of. I've interviewed a lot of well-known people over the years, and I've met a lot of people. I think what happened to me as I was reading that particular essay on forgetting, I remember in 1978, I was at a science fiction convention, and I was corralled by Philip K. Dick, the great science fiction writer, for 45 minutes we had a chat. I don't remember a thing about it. I know, I know, I know. This is what's so mortifying is that that you have retrieved so little and sometimes what you've retrieved is so trivial you are mortified. I was there when the Beatles came to America. I was a newspaper reporter. I covered basically their first week in America. It was the beginning of the 60s. The night on the Ed Sullivan show that they sang, the 60s began, I was there, and I couldn't hear a thing. And that is what I remember. I think it happens to everybody at some point. I I, I interviewed uh, Kitty Carlisle just before she died by phone, and she was able to recount stories to me about the Gershwins, but then I'd ask her a question which forced her to think, and her answer every time was, 
I don't remember. And I realized that I think what happens when you get older is you wind up remembering the anecdote, but not the original event. That is certainly true. But don't forget, Kitty Carlisle, when you were talking to her, was 94 years old. And right. she was always my idol in terms of how lucky you can get when you get older because her legs were so gorgeous. You would see her in New York out to dinner in a skirt slit up to her upper thigh and you just would go oh my god please let my legs look that good if I'm lucky enough to get to 94 and she really had a very good grip for a long time a few years ago I read about Ryan O'Neill being at the funeral of his ex-wife Farrah Fawcett and there was a very attractive younger woman at it whom he made a pass at, and it turned out to be his own daughter, whom he did not recognize. And everyone was very judgmental about this. They were just trashing Ryan up and down. Not me. Not me. I had just been in a mall in Las Vegas when a very attractive woman came up to me with her arms outstretched, and I thought, who is this woman? Where do I know her from? I like her, but I don't can't get her name. And it was my sister. And you could say, well, how are you to know that your sister was going to be in this mall? But I was meeting her in the mall at the very place that she was coming up to greet me. So, you know, it can happen to anyone. One salient feature of the entire book, and I think it's the reason why every single essay resonated with me, is that you're hitting on things that we all think about, but none of us actually put into words, because sometimes it's just too embarrassing. If someone says, you hung out with Philip K. Dick, what did he say? What am I supposed to say? I know, I know, it is embarrassing. And the and that thing that happens when you're trying to retrieve it, not that you can ever retrieve what happened between you and Philip K. Dick, because right. like me, your life has been wasted on you, but that thing where there is a fact you can't come up with, who was in that movie, what was the name of that movie, and you're just sitting there snapping your fingers and smacking your heads, and you can pull out your phone and Google the answer. You know, Googling has saved many of us from really looking like the geezers we are because <laughs> we seem hip enough to be able to use the Internet. Nora Ephron, in looking up your life, I found out that there's a film called Take Her, She's Mine, where one of the main characters was based on you when you were 22 years old, that your parents had used you as fodder for their own screenplay. How did that feel? Well, as I said to you, we grew up being told that everything is copy, and we knew that's what writers did. And it is, by the way, what writers do. It wasn't just my parents. When I was about 10, I think, my sister Delia, my beloved sister Delia, got her head stuck in the, between the banister rails in our house. And the Beverly Hills police had to come and extricate her from it. About less than a year later, that episode was in a Jimmy Stewart movie that my parents wrote. Natalie Wood, at the time a little 10-year-old, got her head stuck in the banister rails at a crisis moment in this comedy. I thought, well, that's what you do when you're a writer. And I went off to college in the East. My parents wrote a play called Take Her, She's Mine. They even used my letters 
in it. And I thought that's what writers do. And by the way, it is still what I believe. I mean, I, at a certain point in my life, it crossed my mind that they never said, oh, by the way, hope you don't mind. But, but we understood the rules in our house. And I very much believe that, you know, if you know writers, watch out. Because if you say something funny or if you have a really catastrophic divorce, it could end up, if you don't write it, they might. I remember years ago, years and years ago, a very well-known screenwriter in Hollywood woke up one night and discovered he had just gotten a divorce and he discovered he was tied up in bed and a burglar was going through his closet. Actually, a robber, not a burglar. And the robber said to him, hey, man, where's your stuff? And my friend said, I just got a divorce. And the robber said, well, where's your wife, man? And, you know, it was just a very funny story. We all loved the story of someone waking up with an empty closet being asked, where's your stuff? And the story went around It was a well-known person it happened to, and everybody knew it. Everybody thought, i got to remember that story. That's a really good story. And John Gregory Dunn, my friend John Gregory Dunn, put it into a novel. He took that screenwriter's story, which I think probably was used in many other screenplays, but the novel came out first, so John Dunn got the story. Now, if that screenwriter had wanted the story for himself, he should not have told it to all of his friends who were writers. But it was gone and taken by someone else. And those are the rules of writing. It's open season out there, and they'll do anything. To that degree, something like heartburn wouldn't bother you at all because it's just simply part of your family history to tell the story. Well, that's what I think, yeah. My mother always said, someday this will be funny. And you could say, well, that's a very cold way to bring up children, that they come to you with a sad thing. And what you say to them instead of saying, oh, I feel so bad for you, honey, is come back when it's a story. Make this funny the sooner the better. That may seem cold, but it is a fantastic way to grow up in terms of learning that if you can get over something, it's good because your parents will love you. As you know, I'm sure you know from having been in therapy, we carry around the need to get our parents' approval with us long after they're gone. And that was a way that all four of us knew we could get their approval, is if we could make them laugh. And a lot of material that's come out since, of course, takes material from your own lives and does that, not just heartburn, but hanging up as well. I mean, I guess it it permeates all of the work of you and your sisters. Yes, absolutely. Nora Ephron, you were speaking with Philip Maldery on KPFA Sunday show, and you made an amazing comment about journalism. Journalism is a job where you figure out what the important points should be in any story. And I keep thinking that maybe the problem with America today is that nobody believes that anymore, or very few people do. I don't know about that, but I do think that we're a lot more savvy about journalism now than I was when I was 14 years old and in that journalism class. And we know that there are all kinds of points that can be pulled out of the same facts. 
we are less romantic about journalism, all of us, not just those of us who went into the business because it was so romantic. Maybe what happened was that somewhere along the line, someone realized that those points could also be political propaganda, and suddenly the points change. You know, journalists are always saying it's the first draft of history and it's the truth and blah, blah, blah. But, but it isn't the truth. It's a story. It's always a story. It's always how you choose to tell the story. It's always what you think the point of the story is. We're now in this horrible world where we have in front of us such a clear example on the news, on Fox, of the story being twisted in our opinion, in my opinion, in the opinion of of 99.9% of my friends. I can't think of who the other 0.1% even is. You know, where we have a entire network and newspapers it also owns twisting things. And this, by the way, this is one of the reasons people are smarter about journalism is that they can see how easy it is to twist things. Nora Ephron, you got your first screenwriting gig working on a screenplay of All the President's Men, which was written, co-written by uh, your then-husband. They didn't use the screenplay, but you got your first gig through that. Can you talk a little about that process and how you learned to write a screenplay? The first draft of All the President's Men was written by William Goldman, and the next draft after that, by the way. But Carl and Bob didn't like it. They didn't really feel that it worked. And they decided it should be rewritten. And Carl and I sat down and did a draft of it, which, by the way, we should never have done. It was not a good thing to do. But here was the good part, is that I did the typing. And I had to retype many scenes by William Goldman, which were fine. And they were not only fine, they were written by an absolutely great screenwriter. And years later, I read an interview with a man named Harry Cruz, a fiction writer who was pretty well known in the 70s and 80s. And he had not had any real education and certainly no training as a writer. And he read Moby Dick and he thought it was so great that he typed it five times the entire book. And he said when he got through, he could write. And that's what happened with me and rewriting Bill Goldman, is that typing his script, I suddenly understood what a screenplay was. I understood how economical it had to be because he is the master of the economical scene. I understood that people don't walk in and out of doors that they're there already, that the scene is distilled down to its essence, that if you can do it in a one line or three lines or six lines, that is better than writing four or five pages, which you can never do in a screenplay. And it was like going to film school. In some respects, I think that's what I remember nothing is. It's everything is distilled down to those specific sentences where less is more. Stephen Sondheim said that in writing his work, he learned less is more and God is in the details. Oh, gods, and which are completely conflicting on some level. But, right. But yes, those are two great lessons. You're listening to an interview with Nora Ephron, whose latest book, collection of essays, is titled, I Remember Nothing. Nora Ephron, in terms of tackling various projects, what brought you to Silkwood? 
What brought me to Silkwood was that I had written some screenplays, and people knew I could write a screenplay, even though only one of them had been made for television, and it wasn't any good. But the script wasn't bad, and my agent Sam Cohn, who was sort of my agent, and the woman he worked with at ICM, Arlene Donovan. Had gotten a call from their client, their very important client, Meryl Streep, saying that she was interested in doing a movie about Karen Silkwood, and Arlene and Sam thought I would be a good person to do it because they knew I had been a journalist for so long, and this seemed like something that you needed that skill set. So they called up and said, "Do you want to do something on?" Karen Silkwood for Meryl Streep, and I said absolutely. And I asked my friend Alice Arlen if she wanted to write it with me because I had small children and I was a little unsure about how much time I was going to be able to be in places like Oklahoma City, where all the court papers are. That all worked out, and that's how I did it. I mean, it was this automatic thing. I knew, I knew the story of Karen Silkwood. As it turned out, I didn't know it at all. That was an amazing thing. Was was doing the reporting and discovering that everything written about her had been wrong. Everything the left wing stuff was wrong and the right wing stuff was wrong. Nobody had really dealt with her as as the very interesting, complex person she was. Not necessarily, you know, a cartoon heroine in any way, and yet a person who did the right thing. So we went to work on it, and by a miracle, it got made. When you see the final product of a film that you've written, but you didn't direct, and you had no control over, how do you feel afterward? Do you feel this sense of accomplishment, or this sense of kind of disgust because they didn't do what you wanted to do? On Silkwood and on Heartburn and on When Harry Met Sally, I was very much involved. I worked with directors who liked writers and who thought writers should be part of the process. Which did not mean I had control over them, but although, by the way, control is a is a kind of hilarious word when you talk about making a movie because you don't ever really—it's like a train that you can barely keep running on the track. But then you know you make a movie that doesn't quite work, and that's the moment you feel frustrated. That's the moment you think, "Oh, I wish I had directed that. I could have done just as bad a job as the person who did, and I would have gotten paid a lot more money than I did for just writing it." So that's one of the impulses that made me want to direct. When you finally got the chance to direct, you'd been around filmmaking enough. Did you just suddenly fit in, or was that first one a horror? No, the first one was really fun because I thought I actually thought I could direct. Direct a movie, which is ridiculous. I couldn't, but I knew, you know, I was prepared, and I knew that you said action at the beginning of the scene and cut at the end of it, and I had storyboarded the movie, so I had an idea about what I wanted the scene to look like. So you knew you were going to sit down and storyboard, taking the screenplay and storyboarding. Yes, even though a lot of the directors I worked with didn't storyboard at all, but people said storyboard, it's good on your first movie. And the truth is, I could never make a movie without storyboarding. You find everything out 
when you storyboard. And storyboarding is just different scenes, the beginning of scenes? No, you basically draw a picture of what's in your head for a scene and almost every cut in that scene. So by the time you're filming it, it's sort of like a novel where you've done such a detail. Yeah, it's it's like a graphic novel. Exactly. That's what it's like. If I were doing this interview in a movie, which would not be great because of the limitations of this set, but, you know, you would draw a picture of the camera in that control room out there looking through the mirror at the two of us, and then you would draw a picture of you over my shoulder and a picture of me over your shoulder, and then you'd write plus two close-ups. And that would be your storyboard of the scene. It's a very simple elementary scene that would only require five shots. But, you know, it means that it helps you when you're scouting locations because you know what you need. You know that you need a shot from a long way away in certain scenes so that you've got to find something you can do that with. It helps the location people. You start to find out what the picture is about, what the movie's about visually when you do that to a much greater extent than you do when you're just writing the screenplay. I mean, what happens if you're doing that and you go, holy cow, I'm supposed to start in X number of weeks. The finances there, the actors are in place and something isn't working. You try very hard not to be making a movie that the script isn't done. I mean, that's one of the first things I learned making a movie, is make sure the script is done. And if the script isn't done, make sure you're working with your sister Delia so that she can fix it while you're working on it. I mean, I have this very clear memory of standing out in the street in Seattle and calling Delia and saying, this scene is not working and my brain is fried. What are we going to do? And we fixed it on the phone in two minutes, and I walked back in. I couldn't have done it by myself. In terms of all of your films, I mean, there's a wonderful section. Again, everything is distilled, and I remember nothing. There's a wonderful section about flops and dealing with flops, dealing with movies that don't work. You know, in my head, I'm thinking I've seen virtually all of Nora Ephron's films. And, of course, to me, the one that came to mind is Bewitched. Mm Mm-hmm. On a film like that, at what point do you realize, uh uh-oh, or do you never get that way until it actually opens? Well, I think you start to realize it the first time you test it. But if you're me, I'm very optimistic. And many, many people in the movie business, there's such a belief that you can fix it, that if you just reshoot this or if you just cut that or if you change the music you do everything you possibly can in the hopes that you can fix it and by the way I have had movies that we fixed we had a movie that didn't test well and I knew it wasn't actually me my sister Delia once again said the reason this movie isn't working is that we're not cutting to this actor we're playing too many scenes in the wide shot and we went through and we recut the movie and it was a complete day and night difference bringing in close on the actor nothing else the actor that the audience loved and they Uh weren't feeling they weren't with him in it 
get in the way that you need to be and that you can be if you have the footage. That, I guess, immediately teaches you what you have to do for the future. Well, no, it doesn't, if only it teaches you. I mean, it certainly teaches you not to stay wide all the time if you're making a movie that people want to make an emotional connection to. But the truth is that almost everything you ever learn about failure is not particularly applicable to the next failure. And the real lesson you want to learn from failure, which is how not to ever have another one. The only way to never have another failure is never to do anything again, and which is the worst lesson you can learn, or worse even, to do the safest thing you can possibly do, which doesn't guarantee a hit either. You know, all these books get written about failure and how you learn through failure and growth through failure. Growth is one of my favorite words. But the main thing you learn through failure is that it's entirely possible you could have another failure. And that is the sad lesson of failure. Nora Ephron, not that long ago I interviewed Gail Collins about her book on changes in the women's movement, and she kept bringing up your name. It comes up in the book as you were one of the leading feminists of the 60s and 70s. I know you wrote the column for Esquire, but it seems to me more that the role model that you presented of somebody who could actually break into the business and still maintain yourself and your sanity is what's key. I was a journalist covering the women's movement, and I was completely sympathetic to it, except that I kept seeing things that I wasn't sympathetic to or that I thought were funny when no one else did or whatever. But its goals were the same as mine. And Gail interviewed me for the book, and I remembered quite a bit about some of the things she was writing about. Well, I didn't remember that much, but I remembered enough to be helpful to her. <laughs> and so I think that's sort of what she's thinking about. I was never kind of in the women's movement in the way that people were. I was just writing about it. You were the pioneers. Well, we were there. We were definitely there, and I was there at a lot of the events at the historic events of the second phase of the of the women's movement. And I wrote about most of them. And then, you know, you became a director at a time when very few women were directing. Did you have any roadblocks being a woman? Or at that point, was your success as a screenwriter kind of overwhelmed the fact that the prejudices existed? I think that if you have a big hit movie, somebody may let you direct one and I had written When Harry Met Sally. So, so I had a shot at directing and because a woman was the head of a studio, a woman named Dawn Steele, she called up and said, I want you to direct something. I didn't, I didn't hear from any men, but I did hear from her. She was then fired. My movie was in a sad, unproduced state and a man who ran the studio made it. Joe Roth. So it's not a simple and, you know, it's not only because of a woman that I got my shot at directing. Nora Ephron, do you think print is dead? I don't know. I don't honestly know. Print is definitely going through some some horrible thing. The fact that I still read a newspaper, I still read, in fact, four newspapers every morning, does not reassure me in the least because I have very smart sons who are adults 
who read the New York Times on the Internet. If that is true, does that make print dead, or does it just mean that print has moved off paper and onto another medium? I don't know the answer anymore. Is journalism dead? Another question that's almost more serious than whether print is dead in some weird way in that the newspapers that are in trouble are cutting back or folding and there's much less really great long-term journalism going on. But magazines were supposed to be dead about five years ago and they're not. They're really not. People buy magazines. People like magazines. The magazines that are surviving are finding an audience. They have advertisers. They are able to monetize themselves in a way that a lot of the successful things on the Internet haven't quite figured out how to do. It's a very complicated thing. I have a Kindle. I read books on the Kindle. I buy books also. That's going to be sad if people stop buying books. You've been listening to an interview with Nora Ephron, whose latest book is I Remember Nothing and Other Reflections, now out in trade paperback. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. Catch Apex Express on KPFA. Apex Express is a weekly program following news and cultural events throughout Asia and the Pacific Islands. Find out about issues affecting Asian American and Pacific Islander communities locally and globally. Get on board the Apex Express Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. on KPFA. Good afternoon, everyone. I just want to let everyone know that tonight, KPFA is having an open house holiday party to celebrate our volunteers and our listeners. And you're all welcome to drop by the station. We're at 1929 Martin Luther King Way, uh, about one block north of University. That's tonight from 6 to 10 p.m. And it's a potluck, so bring a bottle or bring a plate. And, you know, thank you for everyone that supported us in our fun drive. Happy holidays. It's just about 3.30. Please.